So last week we talked about discipleship, what that looks like, what that means. Um, it is through programs such as small groups, but I also just wanted to encourage you guys to open your lives up and to share yourselves with other people, to invite folks over to coffee, to share meals together, just to be open and available. And when you are in those spaces, to challenge one another with deep conversation, when questions that seem to be mundane, like how are you doing, arise, answering them honestly and allowing people into, into your life. Uh, last week we talked about kind of moving ourselves into realms of uncomfortability uh, and whatever that looks like. For some of us that's, that's reading challenging books. For others of us it is um, worshiping in a different way. For some of us it's being more thoughtful and intentional in our prayers. For others of you it's uh, allowing folks to come into your home. Whatever that looks like for you, we can't really script that out or plan that, but we want to collectively be praying together as a group to lead uh, into deeper discipleship-based relationships with one another. This week, we wanna talk about something else uh, that's at least been on my heart and Tessa's heart for the last uh, few, few months as we've been thinking about worship and what that looks like. We want to kind of focus some attention tonight on worship and we want to have this be a theme for the next year or so where we're really concentrating on what our time together looks like. I want to, to begin that conversation by looking at the Psalms. Robert Alter, who is a Jewish scholar that's done a lot of work on uh, the literature of the Old Testament, says this about the Psalms. He says, through the ages, Psalms has been the most urgently, personally present of all the books of the Bible in the lives of many readers. N.T. Wright has a similar um, characterization of this book by saying it has functioned as the daily lifeblood of Jewish and Christian worshipers for some centuries. I don't know um, how your stories are, but mine is very much involved in church. I remember um, being a part of Christian school and going to Sunday school and, and receiving one of those little Gideon orange New Testaments that also has the Psalms in the back. From the very early stages, the Psalms were something that brought comfort and brought peace, whether it was reciting Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, or just walking through these different sorts of, of prayers within this book. It's something that, that takes me back to my youth, but also brings me to a place of safety and security when I begin to think through what these books are. The Psalms provides a window into the spirituality and worship practices of ancient Israel. It's not just for us and how we have, have dealt with our own stuff, but we can actually use this book to go back in history to see what it was like to worship God as an ancient Israelite. Using these prayers and using these songs to, to try to figure out what was going on and how that can apply for us, this book teaches readers how to sing and how to pray. It also teaches readers how to live a life of worship. Throughout the Old Testament, it's not good enough just to come to church. It's not good enough just to bring your sacrifices. It's not good enough just to go through these religious rites and rituals. The Old Testament seems to move in the direction of your entire being should be focused on worshiping God in every way possible. There wasn't the same kind of dichotomy between one's spiritual life and one's work life. Everything was all included into this idea of what it looked like to follow God. There are some misconceptions of worship that I want to just kind of uh, bring to, to the fore here this evening. 
For some of you, as you hear that word worship, what you think is the last 20 minutes where we're up here um, trying to play through some songs and try to get video with sound going to engage you guys in some sort of worship activity. It's, but it's not just singing. Um, if you think about even the structure of our service, it's that we have these songs, but we also have written prayers. So we have this liturgy that is meant to inspire people to think beyond where they are at that moment and take them into deeper levels of, of thought and deeper levels of connection with God. There's misconceptions where this just happens in, in an individual, quiet, safe place, as if you only worship when you go into your prayer closet or when you have your morning devotions. We separate worship from the rest of our life as this compartmentalized section that happens, and then the rest of our day, whether it's work or family or what have you, is completely divorced from that. But, but the way that we see this working out in the Psalms and throughout the Bible is that's not right. Worship is a, is a lifestyle that we adopt when we follow Jesus, and everything that we do has the potential to be an act of worship. There's misconceptions um, that have become so ingrained in our thinking that when worship comes up, we have very specific ideas of what, of what that means. Now, I do want to talk a little bit tonight about what our corporate worship should look like um, or could look like. I want to talk a little bit about um, regaining some passion and excitement and regaining this heart for singing God's praises and declaring the goodness that God has done in our life, but, but we'll get there um, in a bit. But I also want to push us beyond just thinking about worship as singing and to maybe think about um, worship in the way that Richard Foster is suggesting uh, in his book, The Celebration of Disciplines. He says, to worship is to experience reality, to touch life. It is to know, to feel, to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of the gathered community. Worship is not just this compartmentalized moment in our life, but it's something that should be all-encompassing. And it happens within the midst of the gathered community. It happens when we experience God in a new way. It happens when we know and feel and have some sort of attachment in, in this moment. I don't want to reduce worship to a feeling or to sentimentality, but I do believe that for some of us, it might just be so much in our own minds that we don't allow ourselves to feel or to experience much. I want to um, begin to think about worship for us by just talking through a couple of different adjectives that I hope could describe our worship, not just the way that we sing, but the way that we live and the way that we dedicate ourselves to Jesus. As I think about worship, the first thing that strikes me is honesty. A lot of times it might be um, when you're in a situation like this and you're receiving prompts to raise your hands or to kneel down or to do this or to do that, that that might not be who you are. And in this space, I want to create an honest atmosphere where you guys can respond in whatever way is appropriate to who you've been created to be. For some of you, that might mean hands go up. For some of you, that might mean you fall on the floor. For some of you, that might mean that you stand there and you're contemplative. For some of you, it might mean that you sit and you just really think about where you are and who you are and what you're doing. But throughout the Psalms, we see honest worship, not just in the forms of worship, the way that it's conducted, but also in the content of worship as well. This is Hermann Gunkel. He is a German biblical scholar. 
working around the beginning of the 20th century is when he was doing a lot of his writing. Um, and he has been instrumental in people understanding the Psalms in a new way. Can we just tap into our inner nerd here for a second and, and celebrate Hermann Gunkel and for all of his achievements? Thank you, okay. Um, Hermann Gunkel's main contribution to Psalm studies is noticing the necessity to identify a Psalms genre or gatung, Sarah, uh, based on its literary form. His whole thing was about genre analysis. This, this collection of 150 psalms, they vary. They're all over the place. They're, they're diverse. They include all sorts of different kinds of prayers. And he thought, if we're going to understand this correctly, we need to identify what these psalms are, categorize them so we can understand their import. We do this naturally when we read things like the newspaper, because within the newspaper, there's different sorts of genres. You read a political cartoon very differently than you read the sports section, and you read the sports section very differently than you read the classified ads. We have different strategies for these sorts of um, pieces of literature that are in front of us, but one scholar says that a genre is a group of texts similar in their mood, content, structure, and phraseology. And this is what Hermann Gunkel wanted to do around the turn of the 20th century by looking at these 150 psalms saying, this one looks very similar to this one. Maybe we should read them together or see what we can learn from them. Okay, we, we see this taking place, this genre analysis in the world of music, right? For those of you who are not younger than 20, you remember going to the mall and walking into Sam Goody's where you would go get your cassette tapes or if you were super hip, your compact discs. Remember when the compact disc came in those big packaging, it was like this tall, and my very first CD that I got, I got a CD Walkman, it was called a Discman, and I thought that I was the stuff when I got it, and the very first CD that I got was the Boomerang soundtrack starring Eddie Murphy. It was like R&B, and that was my jams back then. Throw it in my Discman, just walk around the house like, I don't know, like the ladies were bound to show up at some point. I mean, they, they did not, but that, that's where I was. But when you walked into Sam Goody's, you would see those little flags that would say rock, rap, R&B, jazz, whatever. And as you're thinking about music, you can compartmentalize and categorize people into different um, genres. John Mark McMillan on the left, one of my favorite artists, he is a bad mamma jamma Christian artist who has very deep, theologically rich lyrics, and I love that and appreciate about that about him. His music, however, is very different from John Coltrane, who was a bad mamma jamma on, on the saxophone, like very different sorts of music. And Drake on the far right, just for the, the, the kids here in the audience, like there's different genres and you can categorize, and you can put these people in their genres. You can do the same thing with film. So when you go to the movies right now, you can maybe see Star Wars, which has a very specific genre, which is different than The Revenant, which is very much different than Kung Fu Panda. If you're taking your five-year-old kid to go see Kung Fu Panda and you end up in The Revenant, problems will ensue very quickly. There's different categories here in, in film and genres that, that we can categorize. Now, we can also think about film in this way too. When you find that genre, there's lots of recurring uh, formulaic structures that take place. 
Every Nicholas Sparks book is the same. Somebody dies, somebody cheats on somebody, somebody is love-stricken, somebody's house is going to explode. Like there's, there's all these problems that are taking place and you can see that reflected in the movie posters of every Nicholas Sparks movie. It's always man, hand, face, woman. There's things that recur so you can say, all right, the genre is Nicholas Sparks romance and there's things that are bound to happen when you go in to read or, or to view this film from Nicholas Sparks. It's the same for Hermann Gunkel. Here's my tie. When he's reading the Psalms, he began to see certain patterns and certain formulas. He began to see different genres and how they were very similar. Now, for Gunkel, he, he um, identified three main Psalm categories. Now, I will tie this back into honest worship, okay? The three main categories are Psalms of praise, or hymns, which at their core, they are declarations of how good God is. The sole purpose of a praise psalm is to say, God, here are five attributes about you. You are steadfast, you are committed, you are loving, you are good, you are creator, you are, like they would just list these things out. It wasn't about what people were going through, it wasn't about what they were really going to do, it was just an anthem of praise to their God. The majority of the psalms, however, are not praise or hymns. They're actually laments. They're petitions where the psalmist is, is in the pit, is in the lowest of the low. They're surrounded by enemies, whether real or figurative, and they're crying out to God to do something. We've gotten beyond the God, you are good, and God, you are great, into the God, you might be good or you might be great, but you're not really living up to that right now. What the heck is happening? The third main category of psalms are the Thanksgiving psalms, which basically retell this moment for the psalmist. I was in the pit. I prayed out to God, and God delivered me. It takes us from that time of lament where the world is caving in on the person who is saying this prayer or singing this psalm, and we see how God has actually proven himself to be faithful. Some examples. On the video that you were supposed to hear is Psalm 100, which is a classic praise psalm that says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that he is Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So here we see this is a praise psalm that is telling us something to be true about God. He's good, he is committed, we are his people. He loves us, he is, he is present and he is concerned for us like a shepherd cares for his, his sheep. Psalm 102 is different. The title of this psalm, which tells us a little bit about how folks wanted us to read this psalm. It says, a prayer of an afflicted person who has grown weak and pours out a lament before the Lord. A lot of people, interesting side note, would think that psalm titles like this were added much, much later by an editor who comes in and says, I want the person to read the psalm through this lens. But if you just look at the psalm itself, you can see some of these themes coming throughout. Hear my prayer, Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I'm in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. All day long my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears. This is very different from saying, 
Shout for joy to the Lord because he's so great and he's so good and everything is hunky-dory. It's now I'm drinking ashes and my, my, or I'm eating ashes and drinking my own tears. Like my life is, is completely in shambles. Psalm 30 is a Thanksgiving psalm that kind of takes this idea of lament and then makes it nice and neat. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. It's recounting this story, saying this is where I was and this is what I did and this is how you delivered me. And he's saying that to the people. Another side note, I think that we could gain a lot in our community from living this out. Each of the three, really. Psalms of praise where we collectively say together, God, you are good, and you are committed to us in the midst of our sinfulness. But where we also allow people the space to lament, to grieve, to make petitions to God, to ask God to do things. Uh, One scholar, Walter Brueggemann, says that within the church there is a costly loss of lament because we do not allow space for people to do that because we want people to revert back to the shout to the Lord for joy because he is so good and everything is so great and we expect that of you when you're sitting here in the seats thinking, yeah, but. And what he's suggesting is that if we would allow people moments to honestly worship without forcing people to be at a certain place at a specific time, that our worship would be much more genuine and much more transformative. Uh, Klaus Festermann says, in the Psalms is reflected the life of the individual and of the people in all its diversity. The Psalms reflect an individual's joys and sorrows between birth and death, including toil and celebration, sleeping and waking, sickness and recovery, failure, anxiety and trust, temptation to despair and comforts received. The Psalms even reflect the grievous problems life presents when the righteous must live in the midst of evildoers into whose hands they have been delivered. Does our worship reflect life in all of its diversity? I think for us, like, um, if I might just be reflective here for a moment, I think that we have lament down pretty good. Um, And if you think about our three-year history, for those of you that have been here with us for any amount of time, you know that we have gone through some really difficult things. And I think that we've learned collectively to grieve and to grieve well, and perhaps for us now, it's that hand on the small of the back saying, why don't we go back to praise? Why don't we allow ourselves to say once again that God is good and that God is committed and that God will show himself to be faithful? Why don't we put the hand on the small of the back and say, why don't we tell those stories where it's not just about our sadness and our sorrow, but why don't we, in the midst of, while some of you are sitting there in sadness and sorrow, you can hear the testimony of people saying, I was in a pit and I called out to God and God delivered me. And that can be your story That's the point of the Thanksgiving Psalms. It's not just to say like, oh, I'm glad that worked out for you. It's an invitation into that story where you say God can be good for you too. Without forcing that on people, but allowing them to see that and allowing them to believe again that maybe God will be present. I would like our worship to be honest to allow us that space where if we're grieving, that we can grieve and we can have people with us, but if we're in a space where we need to believe again, that we can challenge people in that as well. 
Our worship should be expressive. This makes me like get really anxious just thinking about it because I know that that means people want me to do something with worship. And I grew up in a home where it was very much, you know, the spirit was moving to be like right here. Kind of get those hips going from side to side. Not too much though. Good grief. We're not crazy here. We're Baptists. So it's like just kind of, you know, like a little... Whatever it's like, you, you couldn't see that um, happening. They're like there was not a lot of express expression in in my worship, and the way that I would justify that is I would say, well, I'm a thinker. Like God has created me to be very thoughtful and analytical, so I want to sit here and reflect on these lyrics. Maybe I'll sit down and reflect on them just so I don't have to to do anything. But if you if you think about that, that might be my dominant personality trait is to think and to overanalyze and to to reflect theologically on stuff. Yes, but. If that's how I treated my relationship with Kate, it would be terrible. If there was no like, expressive um, demonstration of commitment and love and trust, it'd be tough. She's, she's giving me a smile like, yeah, but that's kind of what it is. You know, and I, I'm getting there, babe. I'm trying. It's okay. You know, we're just, it's just honest, too. Um, but just allowing you in whatever way that you are, because I know that in this room we don't have 50 or so people that are highly reflective and contemplative that just want to think about theology. That's not true. And some of you, you might be sitting there and you're thinking, oh man, nobody's raising their hands, nobody's doing anything, nobody's moving, I gotta move, I gotta move, I gotta move, but nobody wants me to do that, that'll be weird, I'm just gonna usher myself out the door. (laughs) You know, I want people to feel freedom to be whoever it is that they need to be. The Psalm says, shout to the Lord all the earth. Come before him with resounding. Like that's, that's like, war cry type stuff. It's not restrained. It's not dignified. It's passion. It's expressive. Um, it's, it's, it's good. So there's a Christian comedian named Tim Hawkins who has like this, this chart of, you know, how Christians will approach worship in a situation like this. And he's got a couple of pointers, you know, like if you're, if you're a rookie, you might have like the music's going, you might be feeling it and the elbows kind of get going, or you might like, you know, get, get the hands here, the hands here, you bring the big TV or like you've, you've seen the people that's got like the one hand or the whole hand or the fist. And it's just like, it's a lot of different expressions here um, that we see throughout the goalposts. And then you go to your heart or the goalposts and the touchdown or the Rockies, those people, whatever. Like, I, I think that this is funny and this is like, it's, it, it's showing that the people worship in different ways. But here's the point of this. In whatever way it looks like for you to be expressive in worship, not just when we sing, but when you're at lunch with your friends and you're trying to verbalize the, 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 the commitment that you have to Jesus and what he's doing in your life, how are you expressing that? In your discipleship-based relationships where you're encouraging one another, how honest are you allowing yourself to be or are we containing whatever it is that we have because we're scared that people might judge us? or because we, we are scared that maybe our life doesn't quite back up the, the desires and the passions of our heart, it would be great if we could be in a space where we have honest and expressive worship. The Psalms do not let us get off the hook because those people are, they're down in the dirt, they're rolling around, they're shouting, they're yelling. This is like going to a, uh, a European soccer match where folks are in the stands and they're going absolutely crazy. Side note, if you want to see people going absolutely crazy, I commend to you the World Dart Championships. Classic. 
The people that show up, they're all dressed up and like after the guys get done throwing the darts, they launch into this chant. It's a beautiful thing. But like in that moment, they are expressive and they are, they are connected and they are relating to one another. And I think that it would be neat to be able to see that in our worship, not just here, but wherever we might be. I'd like our worship to be consistent as well. If you think about that psalm that we just looked at, it says, serve the Lord with, with joy or serve the Lord with gladness. And one scholar would say that the fact that serving God mostly takes place outside of worship also hints that there needs to be some coherence between what happens in worship and what happens outside of worship. Whatever you bring into this space and whatever you embody for the hour that we are together, I hope that that's reflective of what you embody when you're at work and when you're at home and when you're with people that need to see the light of Christ. I hope that we can commit ourselves to being consistent as much as we are able to living out the gospel, to living out um, the gospel in a manner that's worthy of the calling that we have received. It'd be nice for our worship to be uh, declarative. Um, the psalm says, acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his his people, the sheep of his pastures. For the Lord is good, his commitment is forever, his truthfulness continues through all generations. In the Psalms and in worship, we are making bold statements about who God is. Walter Brueggemann says, to praise is to reject alternative loyalties and false definitions of reality. Praise is relentlessly polemical. Meaning, when we engage in worship, when we sing these songs, when we actually understand the words that we are saying, we are making statements about God that are weighty. For some of us, we're not necessarily there, as I'm saying. And our worship could be world creating, where the things that we say are constructing a world in which we want to live, a world in which we want to believe in, a God that we, um, can say is good and then just hold out hope that he demonstrates himself to be good. One of the songs that we've been singing over the past couple months is Good, Good Father. And if you think about the words, besides like just the catchy hook of it and the movement of it and like the way that it gets your, your emotions going, that declaration of you are a good, good father. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. When you strip the music away and you just think about those words, do you believe it? You're good and you love me. You're good in the midst of all the stuff that I'm going through right now and you love me in the midst of all of the ways that I fail you so consistently the shortcomings, the, the slip of the tongue, the attitude that goes out the window, the way that you treat the people that you love. You're good. And in spite of all that, you still love me. I read something a week or so ago by a guy named Derek Webb. Uh, he used to be one of the singers in Cademan's Call. It's an awesome uh, Christian band from the mid to late 90s folksy, very good. Um, 
but he's kind of like pushing the bounds and he's trying to figure out who he is. And over the past couple years, he's gone through some really difficult things. One of those things is a divorce from his wife who is also within the contemporary Christian music scene. It was, it was kind of a, a, a public sort of thing, but he withheld a lot of information. And as the new year turned, he started to... Um, give voice to what was going on in his life. And the way that he phrased this, I think, could possibly help some of us figure out what worship might look like. He's written a ton of songs, um, and the way that he thinks about them is interesting. He said, I've said recently that my songs feel like my personal liturgy, the things that are said over and over and over to instruct, to inform, to teach, the things that I'm singing to, to thousands of people that show up to hear me is my own personal liturgy. And I don't necessarily or always believe, but I show up to recite again and again in hopes of believing these words. He's singing the songs that he has written about God and about his relationship with God that in the moment he might not even be able to say, I believe these things that I'm singing, but he keeps singing them in order that he might continue to believe or to believe Again, if I'm honest, most of the time I don't believe the words in my songs. I have a hard time believing in a God that could make, let alone love a man who could do such things. I think if we're honest, a lot of us might be able to relate to that. I struggle when it comes down to it to think that God gives a rip. And I struggle to think that in the midst of my life that he loves me. This last line, I think, really seals the deal. He says, so I'll go on reciting and adding to my liturgy in hopes of believing the words because I wish to. I'll keep coming back to this moment and I'll keep singing these songs about how good God is and I'll keep singing these songs about how much he loves me because I just want to hold out hope that he will and that he does even when I don't believe it for myself. This is the beauty of liturgy. This is why we read these prayers that are written out for us because they push us and they challenge us and they, they instruct us into the depths of who God is and they force us to say and to contemplate on things that we would not say on our own to bring us to a point of confession where we have to look right in the, right in the mirror and say, am I really prejudiced? Am I really someone who thinks this or that about my brother or my sister? Am I really a person who has sinned in this way or that way like we we have to come to terms with who we are and for for Derek Webb these these songs and and life in a sense has just gotten beyond cliche and he just wants to believe them he hopes that and I think that for some of us we might actually be there as well where we are constructing a world in which God is good and we can just hold out hope that he will demonstrate himself to be good again if our worship could also be passionate, I think this looks different for different people. I am that weirdo that's really, you know, kind of in my own head. And for some of you, that's not even close to who you are. We see that in our, our relationships with one another. But whatever it looks like for you to be passionate, it's contagious. It makes this faith and this time together um, beneficial because we see people that seem to really understand and really get it. Um, I was talking last week about watching these videos on YouTube from this, this woman from Bethel and just the way that she worships. I just want some of what she's bringing to the table, the freedom, the honesty, the relationship that I long for. 
I would like to inspire us to be there. And I know that sometimes maybe Tessa and I don't take you there because we're kind of similar in that very constrained and we need your voices and we need your passion uh, to demonstrate that in, in a different way for these people. And ultimately, I hope that our worship is transformative. The things that we say, the things that we read, the things that we sing, I don't want it to be just a melody. I want it to be something that gets so lodged in our heads and our hearts that it becomes like the song of our life. You're good and you love me. And we begin to move towards believing that and we begin to move in living that out so that the people around us can see what that might look like and to be compelled by what that might look like and then begin to understand who Jesus is because Jesus is so working in and through us that we are able to be used to bring people to a saving knowledge of who he is. It all starts in these moments where we're together. It all starts in creating an honest atmosphere where we're able to give voice to wherever we are where we're able to express the passions and desires of our hearts to God in worship through song, through prayer, through communion, through all these different things, and then to take that out and to live that out and to transform the world. I hope that it's not just about a 15-minute music set. I hope that as we worship throughout our lives, that when we come through these doors, that this is just an opportunity that we have to express the goodness of who God is. How do we measure this? I don't know. I think it's part of these discipleship relationships that you have where you're opening yourselves up to people, but I also hope that you're finding whoever that is in your life to put the hand on the small of the back and to push you into deeper levels of, of relationship with Jesus and to allow yourself to express that perhaps in a new way where maybe the James family moves from the chicken wing into like, we'll just, we'll just turn it over and have a little, little hand, you know, something, something like that, where we're able to, to move into a more expressive, a more passionate, a more biblical concept of worship, where it's not just about me being uncomfortable, but it's about me giving God every bit of glory that he deserves. At TRP, the thing that I want to do is just create opportunities for you to do that, uh, whether that's through song or that's through reading liturgies or that's through celebrating um, communion together. We talk about this each and every week, um, and I hope that, that this week we might continue to contemplate who Christ is, his death and his resurrection, the salvation that we have that's through him, the life that he has given to us and the way that it has transformed us and allow that to be our worship and to leave here passionate again that God can use us, that God loves us, that God stands in solidarity with us, and that God sees us through his son.